Good evening, everyone. I, uh, I'm, I'm curious as to see how tonight turns out because it's jammed into my head, but the distance from my head to my mouth would seem a really short distance and very little could seemingly go wrong between those two spots. But uh, I've learned from ex experience that that path is one full of great peril. And so um, I'm just as excited to see what's going to come out uh, as maybe you guys are. Um, but uh, like last night, last week was a special week where we got to celebrate communion. We got to celebrate the covenant that uh, we are involved with our Father. That in Jesus Christ we have entered into. And um, tonight, um, what's exciting is we get to see the terms of the covenant. We get to look more into the promises of the covenant. And if you've been here, if this is, you know, you've been to this to our office for more than probably one course, uh, what we're going to talk about tonight probably isn't new to you per se, um, but my hope is that we'll have a, a deeper appreciation of it because a truth like this should never get old. It should never lose its impact like the first day it, it warmed our hearts. It is a truth that should continue to inspire, a truth that will continue to uh, encourage to lift up, and uh, that's my hope for, for all of us this evening. So with that in mind, why don't we open up with a, a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the fact that we are in an incredible relationship, an incredible covenant with you. And I pray tonight, Father, as we look at the better promises of this covenant, that you will be the teacher and will speak to all of our hearts. For once again, it's not so much what I say as much as what people hear you say through me that counts. So speak your truth so that when we leave here, we have more than just information, more than just knowledge about you and your scriptures, but we understand more of what it means to be in you, to be loved by you, and to have you live in, in and through us. So, Father, I look forward to what you're going to do tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What we're looking at is really just another continuation, then, of what the writer began um, in the, around chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 5 of this book, where he began to talk about um, comparing Jesus to Aaron, the Levitical priesthood to the, the priesthood that Jesus holds, which is on the order of Melchizedek. So then he began to mention Melchizedek and then had to go on to a little bit of a sidetrack with a warning that takes place in the end of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6. A warning to press on to maturity because what he wants to talk about are the mature things of God. And so then he came back to it in chapter 7 where he continued to talk about uh, Melchizedek and how Jesus is better. And then if there's a new priesthood, that means that there also has to be a new covenant. Because it was Aaron, and then through Aaron came the law. If you replace Aaron, you dismiss the law, you dismiss the covenant, and now you need to replace it with a new covenant, a better covenant. And so that's what he then talked about in chapter 8, and what we've talked about the last couple weeks. We've been talking about covenant, and how we are in covenant with God, and what that means. It's far more than just a contract. It's far more than a promise, because either of those is easily broken, written, rewritten, torn up, ignored, and dismissed. But a covenant is something that lasts till death. It is something that's been written in blood. 
And so it is far more powerful, far more significant. And so you're looking at now, uh, today, what I want to see is, is the terms of the covenant, or some of the promises. Not all of the promises, but two of the promises that the writer of Hebrews uh, decided to emphasize. And so we're going to look at those promises. And really those two promises are detailed in chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, to halfway through chapter 10, to, to verse 18. So we're going to look at those two, and those two really are, are forgiveness and righteousness. So I'll give you the answers beforehand, so you know the answers for the test later on tonight. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so in beginning of verse 1, Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. These, this word regulations is just the idea of the terms, the, the promises and so forth. For there is a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which, where, in which where the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread, this is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies. Having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. That would have been the Ten Commandments. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. So in those first five verses, the writer of Hebrews has given us a very short summary of what the, the tabernacle would have looked like. And so here is a picture of the tabernacle, and you can see the, the outer court, and, uh, and the altar, and the, the menorah, the, the light stand, and the, the table with the bread on it. And then we have here is the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat, where Aaron's rod and the, table, uh, the tablets of stone were behind this veil. And this veil, I, I think, was actually much thicker. I think it was a meter thick. So it was a very thick veil. All within this tabernacle, this tent, that was created um, uh, as a result of Moses meeting with God. Now, we can go into great detail about studying the tabernacle and all the elements of the tabernacle and the significance of the tabernacle. But the writer says, but these we cannot now speak in detail. So what he's saying is two things. One, he, A, he doesn't really need to go into detail because uh, the tabernacle is well understood by uh, the people of Israel because they're Jews. They understood that. That's part of their heritage. It's part of growing up. It's kind of like for me, I don't really need to explain to you about snow tires. In Canada, we understand that. We get that. There's snow tires. We don't have to go into a lot of detail about those things. So in that part, he doesn't have to go into detail. But the other thing is that's really a bit of a, a rabbit trail. It's not really fitting to the purpose that he wants to get to. So we're not going to spend time on the tabernacle. Instead, we're just going to move on to what he wanted to get to, which is really a far more important point. So why did he even mention the tabernacle? Why did he spend five verses explaining that? Was to get to this idea of comparing and contrasting Jesus and his work as high priest versus Aaron and all the Levitical high priests and their work. And that's all it was. So it was a bit of an introduction. So those are the shortest and easiest five verses probably to study in the New Testament. Just keep going. So in verse 6 then, Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, for which he offers for himself and for the, the sins of the people committed in ignorance. So within that tabernacle, there is the holy place and the holy of holies. And the Holy of Holies is where the Ark was, the Ark of the Covenant, and the Holy Place was just outside of it where the, the lampstand and the, the table of showbread and the altar were. 
And what he's saying here is each and every day, the priests would come in and they would offer their daily sacrifices. And those sacrifices for a number of different reasons. It could have been to uh, a sacrifice at the beginning to celebrate the, uh, the harvest that God has brought in. Or it could have been a sacrifice, you know, praying for a good harvest. It could have been a sacrifice to honor God for some wonderful event. But it also mainly was a sacrifice for the sins that people had committed and broken the law. So, uh, suppose somebody, they, um, they, they wronged somebody, they wronged a friend. And so out of anger, they, they did something. Uh, and so therefore, they need to now go and, uh, and offer a sacrifice in the temple. And so people would be coming in every day offering these sacrifices. And it would have been a long list of people coming in. It wasn't just one or two. This was a busy place. Because every day there would have been hundreds of people coming in to offer sacrifices for all their sins that they are committing. But then once a year, on the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. And only on that day, and only the high priest would be allowed to enter. But before he could enter, he would have to cleanse himself, and then he would enter and then offer the sins for everybody. And these are the sins that were committed in ignorance. So there's 613 commands, and, and if you didn't know you broke a command, or didn't realize that you wronged somebody, then this was kind of the catch-all. It was the, the global, we're sorry, please forgive us, and here's the sacrifice for it. And so he was going in, offering the sacrifice for everybody of the nation. But it was important that he had to first cleanse himself. Because he had to cleanse himself before he walked in. The reason being is because he was included in that list. And what would have happened if he were to walk in unclean into the Holy of Holies? It wouldn't have ended well. They had been searching for a new high priest because he would have died. He would have died instantly. And the reason being is because God is holy in the Holy of Holies and no sin could enter in. So he had to cleanse himself first with a sacrifice and then him and only him could go in. And this was serious. This was really serious business. In fact, what they would do is they would put bells around the hem of the high priest. So when he walked in and he was jingling and, and ringing, people knew he was still alive. But if there was a big thud and the ringing stopped, what did they know? That someone else was going to be the high priest. They had a new one coming in. But then they had a problem because now they got a dead high priest in there and nobody else is allowed to go in except for the high priest on the, that day, on the Day of Atonement. But they had another problem, because suppose they found the high priest, and he goes in, if he were to drag out the dead body, then he would be in, unclean immediately. Because if you ever touch a dead body, you become unclean. And then you would have died. And now you'd have two people dead in, in there, and you'd be running out of people for high priest. So what they decided to do is put a rope around the high priest. So if he ever thud, no more jingling, then they could pull out the high priest, and then... Send somebody else in. So it was serious business. And they were also doubly afraid because if, if he ever died inside there, that meant that God never accepted their, their, their sacrifice. And so that was a terrifying thing for people. And so they made sure that you know, they did it right. They'd offer the right sacrifice, the right, right cleansing to go in and, and make the, the, the sacrifice in the Holy of Holies. But even just day in, day out. And so the, the, new, the Old Testament priest was in very much way a butcher. I mean, he was, every day, he'd be sacrificing animals time and time again. That's, that's what he did. Could you imagine? He comes home for work. Honey, how was your day? 
Same as ever. I sacrificed 30 lambs. Here's dinner. <laughs> and they would have brought the lamb home. And that's what they ate. They'd eat lamb. They'd eat what was sacrificed. That was part of their deal, their pay. In verse 8, now the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed, while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Now, verse 8 and the first part of 9 is a bit of an aside. And all that aside is talking about is that the symbol, the fact that our outer our bodies is this outer temple is still standing. And that's why we are not walking the streets of heaven today. But the day this body falls, I am doing what? Walking the paves, the streets of gold, right? So that's all that aside is about. I mean, really, they could have put a bracket at the beginning of eight and then another bracket at the end of present time. But the main point of what he's getting at then, accordingly, both gifts and sacrifice are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they only relate to food and to drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. So what he's getting at is now the shortcomings of this sacrificial system, the shortcomings of the old covenant of the Levitical priesthood. They're offering sacrifices time and time again, but it's never sufficient. It's never enough because tomorrow they got to offer the same sacrifice, maybe even for the same person doing the same sin. So every day it's happening. And the reason being is because all it's doing is just dealing with external problems, is dealing with the symptom, never dealing with the disease. Does that make sense? And if you never deal with the disease, you never actually solve it. Uh, one illustration would be, um, well, well, let's do this first, and then we'll come back to that. So the Levitical priests were constantly making sacrifices. Ongoing, never ending. And the result of that is that these sacrifices were insufficient to make the worshiper perfect. It would be sort of like if you were sick... You go to the doctor, he gives you some medicine, you take the medicine, and your symptoms go away, and then you stop taking the medicine, and then the sickness comes back. Or are you ever healed? No, the medicine never healed you. All it did was mask the symptoms or maybe treat the symptoms, but it never treated the disease. And that's exactly what the writer's trying to get at, is with these continual sacrifices, it was like them taking their medicine, but it never actually treated the disease because the symptoms never went away. Why? Because it can never make the worshiper perfect. All it did was it only dealt with the external. And the result was that the sins of the worshiper have only been atoned. They've only been covered. And we'll explain that more as we go on. But, but that's all that's taken place. They never actually got rid of them. All they've done is temporarily dealt with them. So, it's kind of like this pig here. Um, you may be offended that I'm comparing us to pigs, but that's, in a, in a way, what we were. And if you take this pig and you clean him up, he will be all wonderful and clean. You could even bring him into your house and he'll be clean. He won't make a mess of things. But the moment you turn your back on him and he's outside, where is he going to go? Back to the mud pit. Why? There's no place like home. Because that's where pigs belong. That's what he is. He's a pig. So you clean him, you wash him again, and then where is he going to go back? 
there's no place like home, right? I don't know if he, you know, clips his, his hooves together three times and goes, like Dorothy, but, but I mean, that's what he's doing. And he's going home back into the pigsty, back into the mud. And no matter how many times you wash him, at the end of the day, he's still a pig. And a pig will continue to get dirty. That's, in essence, the problem that the writer of Hebrews is trying to get at with the old covenant system. That no matter how many times that we were washed, that we were, we were, the sins were atoned for, we ourselves were never changed. So in verse 11, verse 11 to 14 now, the writer of Hebrews is going to give his full answer. He's going to explain it in more detail in verses 15 onwards. But verses 11 to 14 really now begin to really sum it up. So verse 11, but when Christ appeared, so now he's gone, switched from Aaron in the Levitical priests, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through a greater and more perfect tabernacle. Not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. Now think for a second what that means. Remember when Moses, he, he shows the people, we looked at this last week about how he came down and he told the people the covenant gave them the, the Ten Commandments, and they all said, yep, we sign up to it, we agree, they entered into covenant. And then God called Moses up the mountain for 40 days for the express purpose of showing Moses the tabernacle that he was to build. And so he brought Moses up the mountain, and Moses was to write down everything he saw to the, you know, all the dimensions and build it exactly, because what he was doing is he was building a replica of what he saw in heaven. So there was the real, the greater and more perfect tabernacle, which is in heaven, and then the one they created here on earth was just a symbol. It was just a sign. It was just a replica that would be pointing to a greater reality. So where the Levitical priest would enter into the earthly Holy of Holies, Christ He entered through a greater and more perfect tabernacle. He went into the one in heaven. So again, he's greater than Aaron in this sense. And not through the blood through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So here we see the fact that he has now entered into the holy place, but he didn't sacrifice a lamb, a goat, a calf, a bull. Who did, whose blood did he cross in with with his own so remember the high priest would have to make a sacrifice before he'd enter well Christ entered but using his own blood as that sacrifice and he entered in and having obtained an eternal redemption that's the product of this an eternal redemption we'll understand what that means in a, in a little bit more detail Verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defied, defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. So if, you know, what happened here on earth was satisfactory to the extent it was, you know, the blood of animals and goats dealt with atoning for man's sins externally. How much more, how much greater will the blood of Jesus, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead, from dead works, To serve the living God. So how much greater is the blood of Christ compared to the blood of bulls and goats? So he's trying to show to us how much more powerful of a forgiveness, how much more powerful of redemption we have when you consider the blood of a, of a bull or a blood of a lamb compared to the blood of Jesus.
Make sense? So, what it means here is that the forgiveness under the new covenant resulted in an eternal redemption. Let's understand that for a bit. What's eternal? Forever. So when Jesus paid the price, when He offered you forgiveness, this eternal redemption, it is for how many of your sins? For all of them. All your past sins, but also all your future sins. It's for every single sin. And it's for how long will that forgiveness apply? For eternal. So it doesn't matter if you do something down the road, there's forgiveness for it. There is eternal redemption, which means that can it ever end? If you could, if this redemption were to end at some point in the future, what would it apply? What would it say about the fact that it was eternal? Then it wasn't. So for it to be eternal, that means there's got to be no end to it, but also no beginning to it. It covers us on both sides of our timeline. And not only that, but the redemption was a once-for-all act. You see, where the, the, the high priests and the, and the Levitical priests were entering into the earthly tabernacle daily and yearly, how many times did Christ have to go in? Once. Only one time. And that's so incredible because that means that we are completely forgiven. That we are completely safe. It's not something that needs to happen over and over and over again. For this reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant. Well, let's come back to this for a second. So this redemption, a once and for all, He's not, he's not having to do that consistently and constantly. In verses 15 and 17, it's another bit of an aside the writer is going. And basically, it's just the fact that the New Testament didn't begin in Matthew 1.1. The New Testament began at the cross. So now, he, in beginning of verse 15, the writer is going to go into more detail to explain what he just said in verses 11 to 14. And to start that, he explains that the covenant took power, took control the day that Jesus died. Because he's, he's comparing the covenant to what we would call a will. So, you know, maybe you have a family member, a grandparent, a parent, uh, where they have a will, when, when they die, they will leave you certain things. Uh, maybe they'll leave you the house. Maybe they'll leave you the car. Maybe they'll leave you the pets, and that's just their way of spiting you. Maybe they will, you know, do all sorts of things. Maybe they'll leave you out of the will. But it's this act that they can give to you. But that will is never enforced until the day they die. Until that time, the will can change. You can be in and out of the will. But the moment that person dies, the will is now permanent. It can never change. And it is now strictly enforced. Well, that's all he's saying here. So where the covenant is, there must be necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. For it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. So when Jesus made the covenant, it's enforced the moment he died. So in your Bible, if you find Matthew 1.1, go back a page and see the New Testament there. That's not where it begins. It begins somewhere in Matthew 27 or, or John 22 or um, you know, wherever Jesus died on that cross. That's really the beginning of the New Covenant, of the New Testament. But this one-time sacrifice, let's look at this for a bit. In verses 24, 
For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one. So he didn't enter into the earthly one. Remember, he entered into the heavenly one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So there wasn't, God wasn't represented by this ark. It was Jesus face to face with God himself in this heavenly tabernacle. Just picturing that in my mind is almost too wonderful, too incredible to see God and Jesus meeting. And here's Jesus to offer this sacrifice on behalf of us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often. So he wasn't going in to, to meet God each and every day. He wasn't going in to offer a sacrifice daily as the high priest enters the holy place year, with year, year by year with blood that's not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the consummation of the ages, he's been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Meaning that if, he, if it was a daily thing, if it was a moment-by-moment moment thing, how many times would Jesus need to die? Probably thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions of times every day. But the reality is, Jesus died only one time. Now the implication of this is, when you and I sin, do we need to hope that forgiveness is coming? No. Because that forgiveness took place 2,000 years ago. It's done. Remember what he said, it is finished it's finished there's no more sacrifices that's required now with that we have now atonement versus propitiation so let's understand these differences because in the old covenant there was an atoning sacrifice but in the new testament it was a propitiation sacrifice so in chapter 10 verse 1 it says for the law since it was only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer, continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. So remember, one problem is you've got to do it every day. And the reason being is because it can never make the person perfect. It's never sac- it never is sufficient. Otherwise, they would have ceased to be offered. Because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had any consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In other words, all that was happening is they were temporarily covering their sins. So in offering those sacrifices, the blood of the lambs and goats weren't doing anything. All it was was just kind of putting it in a pile, waiting till the day that Jesus came. And the moment Jesus came, he took care of all our sins, which are future at the time, but he also took care of everybody's past sins that had existed before 2,000 years ago, before the cross of Calvary. Because the the blood of lambs and goats could never take them away. All they could do is cover them. And the reason is because it's really, it's all about the blood. It's all about the power of the blood. Whereas the blood and goats and animals could atone... They could never propitiate. That's what Jesus' did, blood did. His life did. So atonement just means to cover one's sins. That's all atonement means. It's just a covering. Whereas propitiation is a wrath-averting sacrifice. Now, this is kind of important to understand because there are some who teach that Jesus didn't actually die for the penalty of our sins. 
that he died for something else. Maybe it was a sickness of our sins or something else. But the reality is that Jesus took that penalty that was on us. Because of the sin of Adam and our sins, we had transgressed God, a holy God, and therefore punishment was coming our way. But what's so incredible about the love of God is that God's love said, I will choose to offer myself, my son, to die, to take that punishment in order that you might live. And so the sacrifice was was there in place in order to avert the wrath that was on us. Now, propitiation, another way of thinking about propitiation, it could be thought of as a sacrifice that takes away sin. Now, there's a big difference between the covering of sin and the taking away of sin. The one way to think of it is kind of with this cartoon here. This is how sometimes I wish I could clean my house. Um, where you just basically take the dirt and you sweep it under the rug. But what's there? All of the same dirt. You haven't actually gotten rid of it. And that's basically the problem with atoning. Now, I remember when I was starting to first see this and I was so excited about the fact that Jesus didn't atone our sins, He propitiated our sins. And, and I came running upstairs and I was going to tell my wife, Viarda, about this. And I ran up to her and I said, Jesus, He didn't, he didn't just cover our sins, He took them away. And, and Viarda looked at me and said, yeah, same thing. I said, no, 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 it's a very different thing. It's a far different thing. It's far greater. He didn't cover, He took them away, they're gone. And she looked at me and said, yeah, it's... It's the same thing. And after going back and forth for five minutes, I gave up and decided just to pray for her soul. And um, it might say more about my teaching skills, I guess. But she wasn't sinking in. And then, you know, the next day or two days later, Slewfoot came along and began to whisper into Viarda's ear some of the sins in her past. But immediately, how do you think she felt? She felt guilty about it. Oh man, I really regret what I did there. And oh, I feel horrible about it. And she just started to beat herself up like every other time it's been reminded. But as soon as that she started to beat herself up, then God whispered into her ears, I took that away. It's gone. And suddenly there was freedom. Because that's what Jesus did. Now atoning is an old covenant word. It's not a new covenant word. And sadly, in the NIV Bible, they use atoning for using it the same thing as propitiation because they don't want to use the word propitiation because when was the last time someone used the word propitiation? We don't tend to use that word in our everyday language, so most people don't know what it is. But the problem is they've watered down the gospel in the process. So all we think of is that Jesus did the exact same thing as as the lambs and goats did, that all He did was cover it, and it's still there. But the reality is, Jesus took it away. Remember when John the Baptist saw Jesus walk over the hill? He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who covers the sin of the world. Is that what he said? Who takes away. It's gone. So it doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't matter about your past. It doesn't matter about um, any sin that you've committed. You could have committed the most heinous, horrible sin. And what did Jesus do? Took it away. It is gone. I will remember your sins no more. I won't remember it on Judgment Day. I won't throw it in your face. 
fact, that's what he says at the end of chapter 9. He says that when man dies, there is judgment, but he, when he comes, it's not in relation to sin. It's done. It's taken care of. He's dealt with it. And so we are completely forgiven. We are completely set free. And why do we need a judgment day? Well, the judgment really then becomes about the works that were done. Were they done by Christ or were they done by us? So that judgment day is actually a day that we can look forward to because we often think of judgment in the negative sense, but the reality is that judgment is going to be in a positive sense. So it's not so much judging your sins as much as now judging the good works that were done. Putting that to the test. John chapter 5.24 says that he that believes they'll have eternal life mm-hmm. will not come into judgment and uh, has passed from death to life. That's right. We take that well, I think in that sense, the judgment is a judgment that's coming for the unbeliever. So there's, there's multiple judgments. There's a judgment for the unbeliever. That's the great white throne judgment. And then there's another judgment, the Bema seat. And that's the judgment for the Christian. One judgment is about whether or not you had faith in Christ, which is for the unbeliever, and that's not going to turn out well for them. Then the other one is the Bema seat, which is for the believer, and that judgment is the works that are going to be, be, be done. And so there are multiple verses that passages talk about that. And 1 Corinthians 3 talks about it. Uh, there's uh, Revelation talks about it. There's, there's lots of passages that talk about having this this judgment, but it's not judgment in the sense of, I'm going to judge Simon and the worth and value that Simon has. That's not what it is. Instead, we're going to judge what Christ did through you. And that's the gold and diamonds and jewels and precious stones that pass through the fire. But all the works that Simon did in his own flesh, no matter how wonderful it might look, that's wood, hay, and stubble, and that's just going to go up like timber, and it won't last. And so the judgment then becomes a positive judgment because we're, we're evaluating. Look what Jesus did through Simon. Look at all the people that he loved through Simon. And we'll rejoice over that. Sorry? More of a celebration. It'll be more of a celebration, yeah. But for how many people have had the vision of the judgment day where they're going to have the big movie theater and all your sins are going to be up there and you're just going to be cringing over it? Well, that's not going to happen. Because that judgment, the beam of seat that we're going to be at, is not in relation to sin. It's not about the sins that we have done in our past. Instead, it's about the work that Christ has done through us. So yeah, a celebration. And for some, it's going to be a bigger celebration than others, but it's going to be a celebration. Yeah. So the judgment, you, you can look forward to. You can have confidence in the day of judgment, it says. We can be excited about it, not afraid of it, because you and I are completely forgiven. So what does it all mean? 9.27, so here it is, For as in much as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await Him. Now to those who don't, like I said, it's not going to be a pretty one. It's not going to be good for them. But for you and I, as Christians, as believers, as people who have put their faith into Christ, then we can look forward to this. We can have confidence in the day of judgment because it's not going to be about our sins. Because what has He done with them? He 
Covered him? Took him away. Completely gone. Completely gone. Meaning, you are forgiven. Completely forgiven. Every single sin taken care of. Does that mean there's no consequences of that sin? No, there's still consequences. Does that mean that I don't have the memory of those sins? No, sadly, we still have the memory of them. But they're not held against you when it comes to evaluating you and determining your worth. They're no longer held against you. You're forgiven. It's been dealt with. It's been paid in full. Um, I like how Juan Ortiz put it. He said that... uh, uh, when God had a file on you of all your sins, the day Jesus died, He took that file and He burned it. It's gone. The problem was, old Slewfoot came along and he took a Xerox copy of it and he gave it to your spouse or to other people. <laughs> and they begin to remind you of all your sins. And He does as well. And that's why it's so crucial for us to know that I'm forgiven of that. That sin has been dealt with, it's been paid for, and I don't need to feel guilty about it anymore. I can feel remorse, and I wish I didn't do it, but I don't have to beat myself up anymore. Because who already took that punishment? Jesus did. It was paid in full. There's no more punishment to be paid. Beating yourself up doesn't please God one bit. In fact, beating yourself up in many ways is a bit of an insult to God. Because what it's saying is, God, you've done really good 90%. Now I'll do the rest 10% and just beat myself up a little bit to, you know, pay it up. No, it's completely paid entirely. You're forgiven. Isn't that good news? Well, as a bit of an aside, let's apply that to your neighbor, to your spouse. What does it say about them? They're completely forgiven. Don't forget to tell them that. Don't forget to love them with that. And don't withhold forgiveness from them. Because Jesus forgave them too. Make sense? So that, that guilt is then from the enemy or a flesh sort of thing? or Because people sometimes go guilt, remorse, sadness. They, they interchange. There, there can be a good guilt and a bad guilt. So, for example, if you were to, you know, sin against Elizabeth, if you were to, to tear a strip off of her, and the Holy Spirit says, Marco, that's not good. You feel guilt in that moment. That's good. That's the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin at that point. In that case, it's good. And then you can go, wait, you know, I was wrong. Lord, thank you for forgiving me. I'm sorry about that. You can go to Elizabeth. You can talk to her and say, you know, will you forgive me for what I've done? I'm sorry. How can I make it up to you? And, and you can make... Um, reprimands that way and correct things. Uh, but afterwards then, you put your head on your pillow and you're going to sleep and then you say, oh man, I'm such an idiot, such a dope for doing that. And now you start to just beat yourself up over it. Well, now that guilt's no longer healthy because that guilt isn't going to accomplish anything. So it's in that moment that we recall, boy, I'm forgiven. Uh, this isn't being held against me anymore. It's dealt with, it's taken care of. Jesus, I thank you that you took it away. And it's gone. And so there's no fear in death. There's no fear in our future. There's no fear at all that's awaiting us. Our, we're completely and totally secure. We're completely and totally loved because we are completely and totally forgiven. There is no sin, save the sin of unbelief, I guess. There's no sin 
that will be held against you. And because you've already chosen to believe, then that one doesn't apply to you. So because of your belief, all your sins are dealt with. Isn't that incredible? Again, one of those truths, though, that we've heard over and over and over again, and sometimes we, we lose some of its, its shine. It loses some of its sparkle. Well, remember I said there's two aspects of it. The other one is the aspect of righteousness. So in Hebrews 10 and verse 10, it says, By this will, so in God, by God's desire, His plan is we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So one aspect of it was forgiveness. This other side is this righteousness or sanctification. Now, sanctified just simply means to be made holy, to be made perfect, to be made complete. So this is what God has done. That we have, by His desire, by His plan, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, through the cross, for how long? Once. For all. It's not something that needs to take place daily. It's not something that needs to happen over and over and over again. It's not something that needs to be done every time you sin. Because that sin's already been forgiven. It's already been dealt with. So your sins cannot taint this sanctification. In verse 14, For by one offering He is perfected for all time those who are sanctified. He's in some ways repeating Himself. For by this offering, through the offering of Jesus Christ, for all time, those who are sanctified. But there's a difference in between these two verses. Do you spot the difference? We have have been sanctified, and those who are sanctified. There's a slight change in tense there. Now the word's the same, sanctified and sanctified, to be made holy, complete, perfect. So what gives? Well, a little bit of study into the Greek here. In verse 10, it's the perfect tense. The, it's a perfect, literally perfect passive tense to be more accurate. Now, what a perfect tense is, we don't have that in English. In English, we only have three tenses, past, present, and future. But in the Greek, they have more. They have more than just the three. And one of them is a perfect tense. And what the perfect tense is saying is that it's happened once in the past for all time. That's why they can have this, that we have been sanctified once for all. That it is a done deal. It happened once, 2,000 years ago on the cross, and the, it lasts forever. It is complete. It's finished. There's nothing more to add to it. It is done. Does that make sense? There's, there's no more that needs to happen to it. It is complete. It is finished. In verse 14, the tense used is now the present passive tense. Now, the present means that it's happening when? Right now. So how is it that we have been in the past and are continuing on to have that effect, and then also in the present tense? Literally, we could read verse 14, For by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Well, here's what he's talking about. The same thing that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 4, where it says that we are being transformed from glory to glory. Now think about that for a second. That just doesn't make sense. That doesn't add up. That's like saying we're going to go from Kitchener to Kitchener. Well, aren't we already there? 
Aren't we already going from glory to glory? Are we you know, going from sanctification to sanctification? Well, that's what God's doing. He is making you who you already are. See, how many people here live as who God made them perfectly all the time? Am I the only one? Yeah. None of us. None of us do it, live it out perfectly. But the reality is we have been sanctified. We have been made righteous. We have been made holy. We have been made perfect and complete. But we don't live that out always. And we fail and we make mistakes. And so we are in the process now of being sanctified. We are in the process of becoming who we already are. But the reality is you can't get any more sanctified than you already are. A great illustration is really the oak seed, the little acorn. And you have that little acorn, and in that acorn is an oak tree. But when you look at the acorn, you're thinking, I don't think oak tree. Oak trees are big. They're giant. I see just a little tiny acorn. But the reality is that acorn will eventually grow up into an oak tree. Now, does the acorn, to use Bill Gillum saying, does it get any more oakier than it is already as an acorn? It can't get any more oakier than an acorn. He's from Oklahoma, so he gets away with saying stuff like that. But, but that's the reality. You and I, we are sanctified, and we don't get any more sanctified than we already are. Instead, we become who we already are. We're going from glory to glory. Does that make sense? Yeah. Here's the other thing that's interesting about it. It's the passive tense. You see, there's three tenses. There's a middle tense, there's a passive tense, and then there's the um, uh, active tense. The active tense is that you know, you're doing it. So the active tense here would be, I'm the one teaching. Whereas you are passively being taught. It's coming to you. Well, here, the fact that sanctification in both parts is passive, meaning, are you doing the work? No. Not up here. It was Jesus who sanctified you, right? Through the offering of the body of Christ. It's not your good works. It's not your effort. It's not how many verses you read, how many services you attend, how much money you give, how many little old ladies you help cross the street, how many meals you deliver that makes you sanctified. That's all done by Jesus to you. That's the passive part. But now even the process of sanctification is done by who? It's done by Jesus. Think about Philippians 1.6. For God who began a work in you, He will be the one to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. So God begins the work. He's the one that sanctified you. And now He's the one that's bringing it, to, bringing it about. He's the one that's bringing it to fruition. Not you and I, but Him. Isn't that good news? Is that... Is that fall under the, you look back at your life, you know, five years ago, still sanctified, but man, do I look better today than I did before. I hope so. but because God... Yeah, not physically, no. A little rounder maybe, but that's about it. Is that that what it is? But yeah. It's it's that process. That's right. I am better. That's right. I hope to, you know, I am more mature uh, spiritually now than I was five years ago. And five years from now, I hope to know Jesus even more. No more perfect, no more holy, but... That's right. But now I'm, it's shining through me more. You can see Jesus clearer. Yeah. 
So, it's finished. Hebrews 10.11 Every priest stands daily ministering, offering time after time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until His enemies be made a footstool for His feet. You see, what was the one item of furniture missing from the tabernacle? There's no seats. There's no one to sit down. Because you know what? They were never finished working. Because the moment they would offer a sin, sacrifice, another one would come in. They were always working, constantly working. Their job was never done. But Jesus, He's sitting in the lazy boy recliner just waiting. It's done. It's finished. There's no more work to be done. And so in verse 18, now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. You know, it's remarkable. When Jesus died, what happened to the veil separating the Holy of Holies from the holy place? It was ripped from where? Top to bottom, meaning who ripped it? God. It's done. It's finished. This place no longer is required. It's no longer necessary. We're done with it. And then, some 40 years later, what did God do to the temple? He burned it to the ground. It is gone. And you know what? There hasn't been a sacrifice since. But you know what? It's not been required. Because 40 years earlier, that place was put out of business. It was done. And so it's remarkable as one day, the Jews will rebuild the temple. But that thing's not required. It's not necessary anymore. In fact, it's a bit of an affront to Jesus that they're going to build the temple in the first place. Because what they're saying is, this Jesus guy didn't take care of it. And so, the day Jesus died, every single priest ought to have been on the unemployment line. He should have been out of work, looking for a new job. Because there is no more sacrifices coming. And he needed food. So he was going to work somewhere else. But it was completely finished. Isn't that incredible? Now here's the thing. I've just spent the last hour talking to you about forgiveness and righteousness. And chances are it's not the first time you've heard it. And I spend every day I'm here sharing these truths that through the cross, through Jesus Christ, He has made you and I righteous. The fact that our old self died, we were buried, raised up as new people, totally forgiven, totally righteous, totally holy. And people say, "Uh uh-huh, I get that. But... I'm still lonely. But I still feel unloved. But I still feel empty. And I've been thinking the last two days, knowing that this is what we're going to talk about, knowing that it would just kind of be, that's good information. That's, that's interesting stuff. But I want to make it far more than that. And, and I was thinking, how, Lord, how do, we, how do we stress the significance of the fact that you love us? That you, holy God, have made us righteous. That you have forgiven us. Because I think what's happened in our, in our mind and our thinking is we kind of have a formula for you know, my, my worth and my acceptance and my significance. And it's on a ten point scale. 
and it's comprised of, you know, God, because he's important, and so he's five points. And then I have other people, and I have my own self, and they make up the other five. And so maybe it's my value is two points, and then other people's three. So, you know, if I got God, that's five. If I've got myself, that's two. And if I get your acceptance, that's another three. Then I'm ten out of ten. And so when I come and I tell people, you're loved, you're forgiven, you're accepted, they go, wonderful, five points. Only five more to go. And the reality is, no. God's forgiveness is it. God's love is it. The fact that God accepts you, that's ten out of ten. It doesn't matter if other people don't love you or accept you. They don't play into the equation. In fact, God's love and acceptance isn't 10 out of 10. It's infinity out of 10. It's the whole thing. It's everything. Because there's nothing greater in this entire universe than being loved by God. And so here's my dilemma. How do I get that across to you? And so I was praying to Him. And then... I think he said this to me. Let's recognize who it is that loves us. Too often we focus on the fact that we're loved and we miss the fact that we're loved by who? By God. You're loved by God. By Jesus himself. He loves you. He adores you. That is the person that loves you. That is the person who's made you holy. That is the person that accepts you. Forever. Forever. And it doesn't matter what you've done or what you will do. His love will never change. This message was recorded by Crossways to Life. It is the desire of Crossways to Life to know Jesus deeper and disciple Christians to experience life in Him through the message of the cross. For more information about our ministry, upcoming courses and events, or how to contact us, please visit our website at www.crosswaystolife.org.